I'm Chris Sims. And I'm Jasmine Moulton. This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. Okay, on today's show, we're going to warn taxpayers about the massive debts that governments plural, are racking up from coast to coast and what that will all mean for your tax bill. Then in Waste Watch, you might be shocked to hear just how expensive it is to plant trees in Canada when the government's in charge. But first, the federal government has been giving wage subsidies to businesses as part of its pandemic response because of the COVID-19 economic disaster. But some of these companies are actually taking the cash, increasing dividends to their wealthy shareholders, and turning around and firing their employees. Thank you very much. Our Ontario director, Jasmine Moulton, is joining us today to talk about one recent offender, Bell Media. Jasmine, what's happening with this? Thanks, Chris. So in late January, it was revealed that Bell Media was given $123 million in federal wage subsidies from the Trudeau government as part of its Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy Program. Now, the wage subsidy was intended to keep employees of COVID-impacted companies on payroll instead of being laid off. Now, only a couple weeks later, we found out that Bell Media was laying off hundreds of employees at media properties across the country, in addition to canceling its all sports format on radio stations in Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Hamilton. It's a really crazy story. Uh, in fact, uh, here in BC, the Vancouver sports radio station just stopped existing. Like mid, mid-shift, just obliterated. They even played Green Days. I hope you had the time of your life after they canned them. It's a really crazy story. And we want to dive deeper into the specifics for a moment because I want to give our listeners a bit of background on Bell Media so they know what kind of company we're talking about here. So Bell Media self-describes as, quote, a content creation company, end quote. And they own a bunch of media assets in television and radio. It owns some of the TV stations that listeners will recognize, like CTV, which has, of course, local news and national news, as well as some specialty channels like TSN. It actually also owns Crave, which is an online streaming service that many of us use. What our listeners might not know is Bell Media is actually Canada's largest radio broadcaster with hundreds of channels across the country under the iHeartRadio brand. It's a very popular app that you can listen to it on your phone. So I wanted to clarify that for our listeners, because when they hear Bell, they might think of their cell phone company or the internet company or the original telephone company here in Canada. That's separate than Bell Media, but both are owned by the same parent company, which is called BCE. Okay, back out of the weeds now. So back to the issue of Bell Media taking $123 million through the federal wage subsidy, taxpayers' money, and then turning around and canning, firing, letting go hundreds of staff. How did that even happen? How was it allowed? I ask you, Jazz, isn't the whole point of the wage subsidy to prevent job losses? I looked into the rules on the government's wage subsidy website, and when this program was rolled out at the beginning of the pandemic, businesses just had to prove that their revenues had declined by 30% compared to the same period a year prior in 2019. So if in April of 2020, sales were down by 30% compared to April of 2019, businesses would be eligible. That's how this whole thing was supposed to work. Now, originally, this program was rolled out for 12 weeks starting in mid-March of 2020. During that time, employers could get up to 75% of an employee's pay or $847 per week if they could prove that they were eligible. 
obviously the program has been extended beyond its original time period because, well, it's still going on now. And the rules and amounts have been tweaked a little bit since the initial rollout. But Chris, I couldn't find anything on the government's website that says what happens if a company takes the subsidy and then lays off its staff. So as far as I know, Bell Media was allowed to do this under the current program rules. Okay. So taking a wage subsidy for employees and then turning around and firing hundreds of them sure doesn't feel right. But we want to point out the timing of all of this here, too, because many of our listeners might remember that it was just Bell Let's Talk Day. That is a day that's dedicated to talking about mental health. And it's a big deal, I must say, within the company. Uh, People ramp up to it as employees and as managers. They often hire celebrity spokespeople to talk about their own struggles with mental health and that of their families. And they donate uh, a certain amount of money per tweet or per text to uh, helping to encourage mental wellness. And so the money often goes to forms of charity. It's a really big deal within the company. I'm no psychologist, but... I don't think that losing your job, being let go, contributed positively to the mental health of hundreds of Bell Media employees. Yeah, it's definitely not a good look for Bell Media. But Chris, what makes this even crazier and what makes the situation look even worse is that Bell Media's parent company, BCE, just announced that it's increasing its dividends to shareholders by over 5%. Yeah, that is a bad look. It makes the whole situation worse. It makes it look as if taxpayers just gave a rich company $123 million not to lose staff. Then it turned around and got rid of them anyway, and then gave that money to its investors instead. Even though that's a terrible look for Bell Media, if the company was able to do this while playing within the government's own rules, that really sets it out. Shouldn't we be blaming the government here too then? Well, criticizing the government's pandemic response is a tricky business because politicians can just use the defense that, hey, these programs had to be rolled out really quickly. Uh, It's kind of like battlefield surgery. So they've described it. It's messy, imperfect, but speed is really what's important. But Chris, I think it's a legitimate criticism here to point out that the wage subsidy program is not new anymore. I mean, we're coming up on its first birthday next month. So by this point, the government should have noted some of the problems with the program and modified the rules to prevent these abuses. Uh, You think? Now, Jazz, many of our listeners are also very interested in another topic that relates to media companies and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau handing over taxpayers' cash to them. In fact, many of them have probably already signed our petition on our website, which is called the No Media Bailout Petition. These are two separate, albeit important, issues. But can you quickly draw the distinction between these two issues for our listeners so they get it? Of course. Yeah, we're in the problem where the government's giving so much money, you start (laughs) to confuse the program. So here's the difference between those two things that you just mentioned. So far, we've been discussing the federal wage subsidy, which was a program laid out as part of Trudeau's pandemic response. It could go to just about any company to prevent mass job layoffs due to the pandemic. Now, obviously, as we've been discussing, Bell Media was given 123 million bucks through this very program. But the federal media bailout 
which you point out is completely separate. This was a program announced by Trudeau back in 2019 that involved almost $600 million in funding to bolster the print news industry. So actually Bell Media and other major broadcasters, since they don't focus on print news, um, they're broadcasters, they wouldn't qualify for this handout. Exactly. So here at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we came out swinging against Trudeau's media bailout immediately after it was announced. Our federal director, Aaron Woodrick, issued a statement at the time saying, quote, Canadian taxpayers should not be forced to subsidize any industry. And that includes the media. And media independence is critical to any functioning democracy and efforts to make media dependent on government handouts obviously undermines that independence, end quote. Now, media bailouts are a bad idea for a lot of reasons, but there is a real issue that this bad policy is trying to address, and that is the hollowing out of news media in Canada, especially at the local level. This issue is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I spent the last better part of 20 years being a reporter. I was a journalist, a producer, I was a host, all that stuff in both print, radio, and TV. I wrote stuff for online, you name it. Just to give you an example, back when I graduated from journalism school, I was like 19 or 20 years old. uh, Say you were in a newsroom and there were 20 reporters in it. Nowadays, there's probably three or four and they're doing more work. They're writing stuff for the Internet, for example, or recording videos of themselves, whereas they wouldn't have done that before, say, being a, a radio reporter or a print reporter. And I'll give you another example. Back in you know the late 90s, early 2000s, the Vancouver Sun, the flagship newspaper here in B.C., they had two reporters just dedicated to the forestry industry. Like that was their beat. Like there are basically no beats anymore. The very idea of having two of them on shift for that one beat is almost unfathomable now. So Jasmine, what do you think can actually be done about this hollowing out of local journalism, especially without forking out taxpayers cash to media companies or compromising journalists independence with government subsidies? How do we fix this? Well, one solution could be to look at successful companies and organizations that produce high quality Canadian news content and commentary without relying on taxpayers in the form of government subsidies. So some of my favorite sources of Canadian news, when I think about it, are often podcasts that are produced by startups or smaller organizations that are funded by their subscribers, not by government. Even our own podcast here at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is growing really fast and it's gaining thousands of listeners from across the country. And as all of our listeners should know by now, we don't take a dime from government. We're 100% funded through voluntary donations from people who simply believe in the work that we do. And actually a good example of this, our Alberta director, Franco Terrazano, just teamed up with Colin Craig from secondstreet.org to release a report holding municipal governments to account on their spending. They even looked into which Canadian municipalities had ever issued pay cuts to their employees. And I don't want to uh, to give any spoiler alerts, but that was kind of a depressing finding on their part. But my point is that this is important local coverage that's holding municipal governments across the country to account. And it was done 100% without any government subsidies. Chris, journalism is so important. It's critical to holding our governments to account, but the industry must evolve and adapt without becoming reliant on government subsidies because that comes with a bunch of other problems. 
This is Deep Dive, the part of the show where we dive into important issues that Canadian taxpayers need to know about. I'm Renaud Broussard, and today I'll be speaking with our federal director, Aaron Woodrick, about a shocking new report from the Fraser Institute about Canada's debt. So, Aaron, don't sugarcoat this. How bad is it? It's pretty bad. Uh, It's hard to know where to start. Pretty much all of it is depressing, but I'll put it this way in an analogy. Think about kids who are in junior high right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just becoming teenagers. They, they can't even uh, drive yet. They can't even vote for a few more years. In their lifetime, Canada's government debt has doubled. That is absolutely shocking. Like, these kids are probably just getting their first jobs, and they'll probably have to pay for this debt for the rest of their lives. So we know it's bad, but whose fault is this? Is it the feds? Is it the provinces? Is it municipalities? Like, who's at fault? Well, really, it's every government's fault. Every single one in this country, they failed on this front. Uh, You know, it's true that the pandemic uh, is a big chunk of that spending, but it's certainly not all of it. And, you know, federally, both liberal and conservative governments piled up a lot of debt. Uh, Provincially, we've seen governments from every party that have piled up provincial debt. And in fact, when when the Fraser Institute tallied it all up, the total combined federal and provincial debt has doubled in 14 years, and now it sits at, hope you're sitting down, $2 trillion in total. That's a huge amount of debt. And that's grown really fast. Like $2 trillion, what's that? That's, that's a two and then 12 zeros after it. Am I, am I right? That's correct. Like, if the problem is this big, why have politicians been ignoring it for all this time? Well, the short answer is because they can. Uh, it's a classic political problem. It's, it's so much easier to deal with things like deficits and debt when the problem is small, but politicians don't want to do that. They don't want to tackle anything that's challenging and that might risk making them unpopular. So instead, they look the other way, they kick the can down the road, and then it gets worse and worse. And then by the time politicians have no choice but to deal with the problem, uh, the action they have to take can be pretty painful, uh, both for the public and politically for the people doing it. Um, but you know, it, it can be done. That's what happened when Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin and liberals uh, managed to balance the federal budget in the mid 1990s. You know, we talk a lot about that at the CTF, uh, but sometimes it's kind of, it's a challenge getting that message across because it sounds boring. Uh, and a lot of people just don't see how it impacts them. Uh, like take billions and trillions. At, at some point, there's just so many zeros and it seems like, whether you have 11 or 12 zeros, they're just, they're just numbers. Uh, so what, what does this represent for the average person? Yeah, you know, you make a good point about sometimes people's eyes glaze over when they hear billions and trillions, it all just sounds the same. That's what I like about the Fraser Institute report is they don't just give you those numbers, they break it down to your individual share as a Canadian. So if you mm-hmm. look, for example, at the net federal provincial debt, so that's total liabilities minus total assets, Depending on the province you live in, your individual share as a Canadian of that huge pile of debt ranges from a low, if you live in British Columbia, it's $43,000 per person, to a whopping $64,000 per person if you live in Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh, God, I don't even want to know where Quebec lands in those rankings. (laughs) Well, you're near the top. Quebecers have the third highest uh, per capita debt burden. It's $53,000 per person. Ontario actually gets the silver medal there. They they owe $58,000 for each Ontarian. And the other six provinces, they're all somewhere between $44,000 and $50,000 per person. It's pretty hard to swallow that if you're born in Canada today, 
this is the side of the burden that's already on your shoulders. You haven't even gone to school. You haven't, even, haven't had your first job yet. And you already owe all of that money. It's one reason why we started our campus wing, Generations Critic, a few years ago to raise awareness about that debt. Uh, I went through this program myself. And today we have dozens of campus clubs at universities all across Canada, warning students that they're the ones who are going to be stuck paying for all of this irresponsible borrowing. And Renault, I know you didn't just go through that program. You helped run that program for us, uh, you know, at the CTF. And we appreciate that. You did a great job. And now you're well, doing an even better job as Quebec director and, and Atlantic as well. Um, but, you know, all of this shows that something's really wrong with our governments, that this number only seems to go in one direction. It, it always seems to continue that way, even if the economy is doing well, um, and even when the parties in power change. So there's a serious problem here. So is there any good news in all of this? Because it all sounds about as depressing as everyone predicted when we said Fraser Institute and that. Well, there is, a, there is a tiny bit of positive news, and it's this. It's that interest rates that were charged on this debt, they are at rock bottom rates right now. And, you know, people will know if you carry a balance on your credit card, you pay interest on that. It's pretty high on a credit card. It can be like 19 20%. Um, with governments, it's low right now, um, you know, almost nothing under 1%. Um, and so that helps right now if you borrow a lot of money, if you have to borrow a lot of money, not having to pay high interest rates will, will save you. Well, that's good news, I suppose. But if I recall correctly, that's exactly the argument some people are using, said that this is a good reason to borrow even more, because it's basically free money. So what's your, what's your response to that? My response to that is that just gambling that interest rates are going to stay low forever is, is a pretty irresponsible basis for plotting out decades and decades of fiscal policy. I mean, imagine, for example, if, if you got on a hot streak at the casino one night and you did really well and made a lot of money, uh, and then on that basis, you decided that you're going to gamble all your money every single night. That would be a crazy, uh, crazy thing to do. But that's essentially what many of our governments are doing. They're just assuming that because we've been lucky in the short term, that this is just going to continue forever. Um, it's also pretty counterintuitive. You know, nobody can predict the future with perfect certainty. But if something is at an all-time record low, uh, there's a pretty good chance that it isn't going to stay there forever, that the rate's probably going to go up. So looking at this report, it seems that there's quite a lot of variation among the provinces in terms of that load. I think you mentioned something like 43,000 in BC, all the way to 64,000 in Newfoundland and Labrador. So what accounts for that, uh, for that difference? Yeah, it's, it's really a combination of the spending side and the province's economic performance. So simply put, if provinces have been spending for a long time without really um, adjusting that based on their own economic performance and economic reality, um, those provinces are going to be in worse shape because they've been sort of uh, not paying attention to the money coming in and just spending whatever they felt like. Um, you know, and another problem for provinces is that they don't have the ability to borrow as cheaply as the federal government does, it costs them more. So that means that the, the debt that they pile up tends to, to eat into their revenues even more than it does at the federal level. So what you're saying is that low interest rates, maybe they're buying us a bit of time, but uh, during that time, during that time that it's, it's buying us, what do governments need to do to solve that issue? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you need to do when you're digging a hole is, is put the shovel down and stop digging. Uh, and in, in this case, it means winding down these emergency pandemic measures relatively quickly. Uh, we've just been spending so much more than we're bringing in for such a long time. It can't carry on forever. Um, the next thing governments need to do is figure out where they can 
cut spending, what they can do without, uh, you know, the good news is groups like ours, I mean, we put out a framework at the federal level. I know you and some of our other colleagues have done that at the provincial level, identifying places where the government could cut back and save money. You know, at the federal level, I've identified 30 billion in low priority areas. And these are all things that have nothing to do with the pandemic. So the pandemic is not an excuse. There are places the governments can, can cut back and save money. Uh, you know, and last but not least, just being optimistic, uh, if governments do this and they get us back to balanced budgets, um, you know, eventually there could be surpluses, there could be money left over and they should use that rather than just spending it again to pay down the debt on what we've already borrowed. And mm-hmm. that's a pretty lofty goal, uh, given where we are right now, it's still bleeding red ink all over the place, but hopefully something that's possible within a few years. Yeah, I think right now people will be happy with government simply not making things worse, never mind making things better. Uh, but it's clear with, without long-term planning, these problems will just spiral even further out of control. So thank you so much for bringing this to our attention, Aaron. And if you want to read more about the Fraser Institute report on government debt, uh, be sure to check it out. We're going to have some links in the show notes. This is Waste Watch, the part of the show where we, we make fun of all the dumb things politicians <laughs> spend your money on. And oh boy, do we got a good one today, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. We literally can't get through this speech without laughing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Franco, why don't you think? Why, why don't you kick things off while I try to get my composure back? All right, hear me out, ladies and gentlemen. The Trudeau government is expected to go three billion dollars over budget trying to plant trees. Trees. <laughs> Let me say that one more time. The Trudeau government is expected to go nearly three billion dollars over budget trying to plant trees. So when you when you look at this entire tree planting expedition that the feds are going to be going on, it's going to be costing taxpayers about $6 billion. So wait, you said that if the government is expected to go $3 billion over budget and that the entire cost will be $6 billion. So that means that the feds are basically doubling the original budget for trees. You know, they say money doesn't grow on trees, but it sure takes a whole lot of money to, to make those things grow, apparently. And this is in a year where we're going to have a $400 billion federal budget deficit. And the feds can't even manage to plant trees with only $3 billion. Oh, God help us. (laughs) You know, I can't stop laughing right now, but when you actually think about it, it's kind of sad. It's kind of frustrating. $6 billion is a ton of money that we're going to be spending on trees. And it really got me thinking, you know, what, what else could taxpayers get for $6 billion? So, so I ran some numbers here. Uh, we could get about eight new hospitals for that amount of money. Or we can hire 18,000 new doctors. Um, you know, I know a lot of Canadians were, a lot of Canadians are worried about healthcare right now. I don't know too many Canadians staying up all night wishing we had about $6 billion more worth of trees. And uh, Renault, this is my personal favorite one, and you're going to love it being the boots on the ground in Atlantic Canada. Well, the entire province of New Brunswick or the entire province of Newfoundland and Labrador wouldn't have to pay any federal taxes for an entire year if Trudeau wasn't blowing $6 billion on trees. <laughs> you, you know, maybe I need to start a new campaign. Less trees, more tax relief. I, I kind of like it. It sounds, it sounds pretty good. I love it, man. And, I, and I'm going to be signing that petition. <laughs> now, <laughs> I got something else for you, though. Okay, you want to hear the irony in all this is that Trudeau would have been able to plant his $6 billion worth of trees if we didn't have such a pipeline problem in Canada. We ran the numbers on that, too. And it turns out the pipeline deficit in Canada 
could cost the federal government about $6 billion between 2013 and 2018. So there you have it, folks. Yet another reason that we need to get pipelines built in Canada. You know, leave it to the guy from Alberta to argue for pipelines so we can plant more trees. But I think we, we need to talk more about the fact that feds are going to double the original budget. Like, that was supposed to cut $3 billion, bucks, which is already a ton of money for trees. Like, I, I don't think I've ever heard any Canadians say that we don't have enough trees in this country. But now, the parliamentary budget officer thinks that Trudeau's actual tree budget will be, once again, double what was budgeted originally. So how do you go $3 billion over budget on trees? Yeah, well, I mean, right there, that is the uh, $3 billion question. <laughs> but now, here's something else I need to tell you about, and I can't make this up. I wish I could, but I can. It's real. Our finance minister, Christia Freeland, when talking about the tree budget, essentially said we shouldn't worry because it's going to create some jobs. Here's a, here's a direct quote from Freeland. Planting those trees is jobs too. And I really have to say, it also gets Canadians really excited. So don't worry, everyone. Take a load off. Relax. We'll grow our way out of this downturn, one tree at a time. Oh, God. And we can't stress this enough. This, this was our finance minister. But yeah, the, the person whose only real job should be to worry about our trillion-dollar debt, our $400 billion deficit, is now excited about a multi-billion-dollar tree budget? Yeah, and it gets worse. Conservative environment critic Dan Albus said the cost could go even higher. You know, that's because, <laughs> I know, even higher. And that's because the government wants to plant more trees in cities. You know the cost overruns that we've been talking about this whole segment reported by the parliamentary budget officer? Well, the report focuses on rural tree planting. So the tree budget may end up being even more than that because oh, the government wow. wants to plant trees in cities. And, you know, no <laughs> governments, I'm envisioning... <laughs> the government trying to plant palm trees in downtown Toronto. <laughs> well, thanks, Franco, for coming on the show to talk about yet another example of the government blowing your tax dollars. I have a feeling we'll end up seeing a lot more about this in the future, so stay tuned. Yeah, and I think I need to make a little public service announcement here. We're not anti-trees. We're anti-blowing <laughs> $6 billion on trees. Well, that's it. That's the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to James Wood for editing it. Yes, thanks to all our listeners who have helped the show grow so much. And please, please, please like, share and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube. Um, let your friends know so that they can listen in too. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.